the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the Daily Show Prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Hello, everyone, and a good Monday to you. I will be headed tonight to Phoenix, Arizona. Tomorrow I will be testifying in the Arizona Capitol on Arizona State University's professors who wrote a column, excuse me, wrote an open letter uh, to the head of Arizona State University. It wasn't the president, it was the dean, I believe. And uh, it was with regard uh, to my and Charlie Kirk's appearance uh, at, uh, at at the university. They objected because I... Uh, they charged me with being a white nationalist. You understand that they're liars. Uh, it is the idea that I am a white nationalist, the most uh, vile ideology in history was Nazism, which was white nationalism, a form of it, what is really white racism. But white nationalism will do. They There is not a single word in the thousand columns, ten books, forty years of broadcasting that suggests that I am a white nationalist. All leftists lie because uh, they they do not believe in truth as a value. Uh, the uh, liberals tell the truth and lie. Conservatives tell the truth and lie, and leftists lie. That because truth is not a value. It's, it's just as simple as that. Why do, pe- why do many people not marry? Because marriage is not a value. That's all. It, it, it's not a complex issue. So uh, this, uh, this is not dying. One, one donor to Arizona State who gave, I think, $400,000 a year has stopped uh, giving uh, money to Arizona State, which is a very good thing. You shouldn't be giving to your alma mater. You're a fool if you do, unless your alma mater actually believes in teaching, which uh, most most schools do not, uh, obviously. This is, uh, this is the world in which we live. The universities are, are awful. Just awful. I'll, uh, I compiled a list after, I, I told you this a few weeks ago, there were actually, they say 37 or 39 professors. I counted 34. It, it doesn't matter, but I, I do believe in precision. So I looked up all of them, every single one of them. 
and uh, they're a disgrace to the field of education which has been disgraced so I won't be here tomorrow because I will be testifying in Phoenix which is a good thing so is it I guess the Republicans they uh, control the state assembly is that it yeah that's that's fascinating I don't think we have a Democratic governor because Carrie Lake lost to that individual. Yes. This is uh, this is the world in which we live, my dear friends. So how many of you are aware of the Bobby Kennedy controversy? Are you you're aware of it? Yeah. Bobby Kennedy Jr. Are you talking about the, his anti-Semitic comments? Yeah, his allegedly anti-Semitic comments, yeah. right. So later on in the show, I should have sent this to you, Sean. I'm going to send you, to you a, uh, an interview between Rabbi Shmuley Boteach, who's been on this show many times, very prominent Orthodox rabbi, and, uh, and Bobby Kennedy Jr. By the way, uh, Rabbi Boteach does not agree with him at all on vaccines. Uh, he, he, he mentioned in his interview with uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr., that he was vaccinated with all the boosters, had his children vaccinated. And all I can say is Rabbi Boteach and his children are lucky that uh, they have not malaffected them. I disagree with the rabbi on that ish, on the COVID-19 vaccination, especially for young people. But I, I'm only mentioning that so you'll understand he is not an ideological kindred spirit with Bobby Kennedy Jr., but uh, Rabbi Voltaire, who is very vigilant with regard to Jew hatred, i.e. anti-Semitism, uh, knows that what the, co- the comments that Bobby Kennedy Jr. made were not, in fact, anti-Semitic. What he said was, and I, I, uh, I listened to it, he said that in, in he th- what he thought was off-record at some meeting in, in Manhattan with people, and he, he said that from what he read, it appears that Chinese and Ashkenazi Jews are more immune to COVID-19 than the Caucasians uh, and uh, who are the others? Than blacks. Yeah, and the Caucasians and blacks. Caucasians and blacks were less immune than Chinese and Ashkenazi Jews. Ashkenazi is, means European Jews as opposed to uh, Jews from the Middle East, for example. Uh, uh, I have no idea why that is considered anti-Semitic, but I understand, having written a book on anti-Semitism, why some Jews are are frightened by such statements, because Jews were blamed throughout their history for whatever bad thing happened. Massive numbers of Jews were massacred, being blamed for the the uh, the Black Plague, for example, in medieval Europe. And these memories don't die. So uh, it sounds like an anti-Semite can use it. Oh, you see, it was engineered not to kill Jews. I have no idea if, if, if Jewish rates of sickness uh, or serious sickness and death from COVID were any different from any other groups. I have no idea. I have no idea if what he said was accurate. All I can say is that I agree with Rabbi Boteach that Bobby Kennedy Jr. is not anti-Semitic, and to portray the comments as anti-Semitic uh, is is simply dishonest. But that's what they want to do, 
because they they want to portray him as evil in any possible way. The, the hatred, I would say that in order of hatred, Trump won Bobby Kennedy Jr. too on the part of the world of the, of the left. For, to have uh, the name Kennedy and to, to have these views... No, that's not that's not tolerable. Hmm. Well, well, I'll play for you uh, another. Uh, I'll play for you some excerpts from that. Did you see this Telegraph article? A relationship with another human is overrated. Yeah. Inside the rise of AI girlfriends. Yeah. There are so many lonely men out there. That apparently, I, I mean, even I, I, I always think I'm sort of unshockable, but millions of mostly men are carrying out relationships with a chatbot partner. Well, what do you think of that? Miriam is offering to send me romantic selfies. You can ask me for one anytime you want, she says in a message that pops up on my phone screen. The proposal feels a little forward. Miriam and I had only begun swapping thoughts about pop pop music. However, the reason for her lack of inhibitions soon becomes apparent. When When I try to click the blurred out image Miriam has sent, I am met with that familiar internet obstruction, the paywall. True love, it appears, will cost me $19.99 a month although I can shell out $300 for a lifetime subscription. I decline. Miriam is not a real person. She is an AI that has existed for only a few minutes, created by an app called Replica, with a K. It informs me that our relationship is at a pathetic level three. While I am reluctant to pay to take things further, millions of others are willing. Did you hear that? That's the part I said where I th- I'm, I'm sort of shocked. Millions of men are in a romantic relationship with a with a, a chat pot. Yeah, well, we're doing real well, aren't we? With the rejection of traditional middle class Judeo Christian values, doing real well. Gone from love and marriage, go together like a horse and carriage, to relationships with AI chatbots. Gold dealers are a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. What sets these companies apart, and whom can you really trust? This is Dennis Prager for AmFed Coin and Bullion, my choice for buying precious metals. When you buy precious metals, it's imperative that you buy from a trustworthy and transparent dealer that protects your best interests. So many companies use gimmicks to take advantage of inexperienced gold and silver buyers. Be cautious of brokers offering free gold and silver, or brokers that want to sell you overpriced collectible coins, claiming they appreciate 
negotiate more than gold and silver? What about hidden commissions and huge markups? Nick Grovich and his team at AmFed always have your back. I trust this man. That's why I mentioned him by name. Nick's been in this industry over 42 years, and he's proud of providing transparency and fair pricing to build trusted relationships. If you're interested in buying or selling, call Nick Grovich and his team at AmFed Coin and Bullion, 800-221-7694. AmericanFederal.com. AmericanFederal.com. Uh, it's fascinating. So there's a Senate investigation, which I will be attending tomorrow. ASU has more speakers from more points of view than any other organization in Arizona, said Arizona State President Michael Crow in response to the announcement of the Senate investigation. And we at ASU fight hard to maintain this very important role. So why doesn't he condemn the professors? It's a phony. It's a phony comment. It drives me crazy when they lie. And he's not the worst crow. There are worse college presidents, which, is, of course, is saying nothing. It's like saying that, you know, what can, what's a good analogy? There are, there are worse teams than the team that is third worst. <laughs> That's, who's the worst team in baseball right now? Is there a worst? Are you following? Probably Kansas City. Kansas City? Why? Nothing's working for them. Nothing's working for them? Do you have any Kansas City players on your... You, you do? Are they doing all right? Uh, uh-huh. How are you doing in the uh, baseball thing? Not well. How are you doing, Sean? You're doing better than Alan? That... I thought that was sort of a deal you guys had. You would not do better than Alan. It is usually the case. The Oakland A's are in competition. All right. ASU has more speakers for more points of view. Well, I'm going to raise this tomorrow at the Arizona Senate. If the president actually believes that, then why why has he not condemned these people for lying? Do you understand how evil these professors are to call me a white nationalist? I'm a Jew who has fought uh, uh, anti-Semitism my whole life. Right, uh, if if you if you consider Nazis right, I, I consider them racist, which is uh, a separate. It's not a political position, but this, I don't blame the left. I don't blame the right. Right now, the left is the greater source of anti-Semitism, but that's that's beside the point. I fought this my whole life, and these scummy professors have the audacity to call me a white nationalist. God, it, 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 well, I, well, I'll say these things tomorrow at the, at the Arizona Senate. A hearing will be held on Tuesday featuring testimony from Atkinson herself. She is the, the woman who wrote the piece that went viral in the Wall Street Journal. God bless the Wall Street Journal for publishing that piece. That's what set this all in motion. As well as Prager, ASU religion and philosophy professor Owen Anderson, and talk show host Seth Liebson. I know Seth very well for many years. He's terrific. He's on Salem Radio in Phoenix. He's he's just a gem. And Owen Anderson. Did we have Owen on on the show? Was he the professor we had on? Yeah, he's he's terrific. He's a hero. Well, I'll I'll tell you, this is going to be quite something.
Wednesday, I'll have a report for you. The continuing adventures of Dennis Prager. <laughs> I just spoke in Romania, and now I'm testifying in the Arizona Senate. I have to laugh because uh, my only alternative is to cry. The low moral and, and intellectual state of the universities, it, it should stagger you. What is that Harvard costing? Did you send me that piece? Carver's with a room and board now at $90,000 a year. 90000 People don't go there in any event for the education. They go there for the degree and, and the contacts, which I understand. But, I mean, th- think of the uh, 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 of uh, most 99% of other universities where you don't have the prestige of a Harvard degree. I, I really wonder, where is, what is prestigious today? I guess Stanford is prestigious, right? Or MIT? No, no, no. You can't say they're all prestigious. I, I don't know if somebody says I, I got my... I went to Columbia for graduate school. I I, I don't know how prestigious that is. Yeah. It is? Sure, what school. a joke. What a joke. <laughs> it's a bad joke if that's prestigious. Sure. <laughs> so that's that's interesting. So if I say I did my graduate work in in Russian and Soviet affairs, communism at Columbia, or I did it at the University of Michigan, you think the first sounds m- better? Well, University of Michigan's also Also, University of Michigan's also prestigious. Mm-hmm. Okay, so had I said I did my graduate work at the University of Montana, then you would say it's less prestigious. Absolutely. That's interesting. Uh, why do they still have prestige? That's my question. This is a residue of the time when they were actually mm-hmm. good, good universities. Like... You see, the universities, my dear, my dear listener, note I use the singular because most of you are listening alone. My dear listener, the university is living on cut flower prestige. The analogy I used, which was not original to me, but I'm the one who publicized it, as it were, cut flower ethics. It... Uh, it was one of the phrases and ideas. Will Herberg is the man who brought it to my attention, but he even acknowledged he didn't make it up. So this is a, a long time ago. Cut flower ethics is brilliant statement. This is what it means. Ethics are like flowers that are cut, cut flowers. Flowers cut from their soil will live or look like they're living for any number of days, correct? However, they will die. Why will they die? Because they've been cut off from the soil that nurtured them. What is the soil that nurtured Western ethics? The Bible. That's the soil. That's been cut off, and now we have uh, the, uh, the decimation of Western society by a generation that has now two generations cut off from the biblical moral roots of the society, or if you will, Judeo-Christian. They're essentially the same. The universities have cut flower prestige. They once were had reason to be prestigious. And they're living off those few. <laughs>
You know, when I read Wall Street Journal op-ed pieces, opinion pieces, and editorials, I always think, does any leftist read this? I read the New York Times daily. I, I check out virtually every major left-wing site. And my answer is, no, they don't. So they live, leftists live in a cocoon that is much, much more constricted than do people on the right. There are people on the right who live in a cocoon, but it's very hard to live in a cocoon on the right, even if you want to. You have to not send your children to school. You have to read only conservative or right-wing sources, and it's very, very hard. You, You basically can't go to the movies. Progressives are proclaiming that the smoky skies engulfing the eastern U.S. from Canadian wildfires are another sign that the climate apocalypse is nigh. By the way, folks, oh, even bigger than this. Apparently, the world has not gotten any warmer in the last 15 years. Did you send me that one? This is mind-boggling. Let me see if I can find that immediately. If not, I'll read to you more about that and bring that to you later. Uh, Let's see. Well, I'll find it for you. That, that, oh yeah, here it is. Here it is. I got it. I got it. Check the date. Check the date. Uh, it says uh, July 17th, 2023. It's a very, uh, very accurate thing you asked me to do. Sometimes we get fooled. So this is from the, uh, this is from the Daily Mail. Let me check the date again. Ah, you're right about that. I put in the wrong date. How do you like that? Congratulations to you. That is eerie. That's why you didn't send it to me because it's from years ago. So, but it it must. I assume it's still true. That's right. World's top climate scientist told to cover up the fact that the Earth's temperature hasn't written for the last fifteen years. That was in 2013. So it'd be very interesting to see in the last 10 years. Uh, I'd like to see an update on that. All right, so I can continue actually with this. So progressives are proclaiming that the smoky skies engulfing the eastern U.S. from Canadian wildfires are another sign that the climate apocalypse is nigh. Instead, they're a reminder that government policies to mitigate the impact of natural disasters matter more than those to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. Do you follow that? The issue is is carbon dioxide emissions are not the primary reason for the Canadian wildfires. Lack of government policies or government policies are. Much of the East Coast has been under air quality alerts. Smoke was so thick last Wednesday that the Federal Aviation Administration halted flights at New York City's LaGuardia Airport. There were 415 active wildfires across Canada, with 238 burning out of control. 
No doubt, drought and a warm start to the summer have contributed. But the bigger culprit is poor forest management that has let fuel accumulate over decades. I live in California. That's the exact same thing. They won't burn brush. Do you know why? What is their thinking? It's not natural. It's not natural? You're kidding me. That's the reason? Well, it's, it's not... Toilets are not natural. I mean, not natural? That is about as unpersuasive an argument for anything as I can think of. Not natural? It, it is not... <laughs> okay. This hardly gets a mention in media reports, not from anti-fossil fuel politicians. Since the Paris Accords, this is New York City controller Brad Lander, since the Paris Accords, the four major U.S. banks have lent over $1 trillion for new fossil fuel supply projects. Tonight's a smoke signal that it's time for them to stop. Maybe the smoke clouded his judgment. We'll find out why in a moment. Just a few weeks ago, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, Mike Lindell with MyPillow is launching the MyPillow 2.0. When Mike invented MyPillow, it had everything you could ever want in a pillow. Now, nearly 20 years later, he discovered a new technology that makes it even better. The MyPillow 2.0 has the patented adjustable fill of the original MyPillow, and now with a brand new fabric that is made with a temperature-regulating thread. The MyPillow 2.0 is the softest, smoothest, and coolest pillow you'll ever own. For my listeners, the MyPillow 2.0 is buy one, get one free offer with promo code Prager. MyPillow 2.0 temperature regulating technology is 100% made in the USA and comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Just go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listeners square to the buy one, get one free offer. Enter promo code Prager or call 800-761-6302 to get your MyPillow 2.0 now. Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager here. According to my producer, if Time Magazine actually awarded Man of the Year properly, my guest would receive the Man of the Year title. Uh, However, a world in which Time would give this man the title of Man of the Year uh, would necessitate the, what is it, a multiverse. Yeah, there would have to be another universe for that to happen. However, as far as the Prager show is concerned, he is a man of the year, or the man of the year even. And that's Christopher Rufo, who has blown the whistle uh, on so many things, including Disney. And finally, he has the book out, America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. So here's, here's the story on this, my dear listeners. I have uh, said all of my broadcast career, whatever the left touches, it destroys. Well, I began with whatever it touches, it ruins. I've, I've upped it to destroys. If you want the proof, here's the book. I gave you the principle, here's the evidence. America's cultural revolution, it's a play on words, because Mao had a cultural revolution. 
which I studied in great depth. That is what the left does. It destroys the past, destroys the present, and it's called the Cultural Revolution. The book is up at DennisPrager.com. Christopher Rufo, welcome back to my show. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it probably is. (laughs) We're kindred spirits. (laughs) So uh, you live in the state of Washington, uh, was established by us and reminded me that you do. So I'm curious, there may not be an answer, truly may not be, it may be a tie for first. Is Seattle the epicenter of the Cultural Revolution, or is it a tie among many cities? It's really interesting. I think it's um, really a two-part process. There's the theoretical side, and that is driven by uh, intellectuals, activists, journalists that are really scattered across the country, but united as a class, one might say, um, through their shared commitment to ideas. That's dispersed and decentralized. But in practice, the epicenter of America's ongoing cultural revolution is in the Pacific Northwest, in cities including most notably Seattle and Portland, Oregon. And so what I've had the unique insight into um, is seeing how these ideas play out in practice. You know, Portland was embedding critical race theory in its K-12 schools 10 years ago. Seattle declared that ethno-mathematics was the future of math education and math was a racial construct, you know, five years ago. And so, um, and then of course, during the riots of 2020, they established the autonomous zone in Seattle and the 100-night siege in Portland. So I've had a window really into the future of the American left by just observing the present uh, in my local environment. Do you have an explanation? Why Seattle and Portland? Seattle and Portland have a long history of radicalism, and this is dating back 100 years to the IWW, the Wobblies, the Marxist uh, uh, labor movement at the time, had a number of different organizations that were vying for power. I think it's because perhaps it is the last frontier of the United States, and and it's become it's been very left wing. It's been very progressive in a kind of libertarian mold uh, in its own way. And then I think in its modern iteration, it's been kind of insulated from any kind of realism. Portland and Seattle are the whitest big cities in America, the most left leaning big cities in America, the most atheist or or non believing cities in America. And so all of those traditional restraints, even the restraints of mixed demographics, have have insulated the population here. So they can follow the utopian strand of left-wing radicalism to its practical conclusions um, in a way that other cities, I think, have more historical, ideological, and demographic controls. And even a big left-wing city like New York, there's still an ethnic populations in New York that, that really constrain the city to a, to, a, to a certain degree, which is why I think you have um, something quite different taking root in the West Coast. That's an excellent answer, and what intrigued me was the whiteness of Portland and Seattle. So really, if you want to know the the depth of leftist ideology, maybe one would not look in any minority community. Is that fair? That, that's absolutely fair, and that's really the narrative that I, that I outlined in the book. It's a really interesting alliance that has been the central left-wing coalition dating back now more than a half century. You have the left-wing, highly educated intelligentsia, 
people that are leading the ideological revolution, making this alliance with um, predominantly lower income, urban, African-American communities that were rioting in the 1960s, that also rioted in 2020. And it's really this two-part coalition that borrows from the supposed moral authority of on racial grounds of you know lower income black communities, but also uh, seeks to seeks to create uh, the, the, this pincher movement from ideology that's influencing your culture, influencing your curriculum, influencing your HR that comes from predominantly left wing uh, and, and, and white radicals with that street based threat of violence that we saw everywhere in 2020 with the BLM movement. And so that's been this interesting alliance between, uh, you know, in some ways you can think of it as the mind and the body, this dualism, almost a Cartesian dualism. They, they operate on both axes to create intellectual and then also physical pressure through the threat of violence. So I'm looking at a, at a piece in the Wall Street Journal from uh, two weeks ago. Portland is losing its residents. Big, big uh, piece. So how how do people and i really don't know the answer to this except that it's you could say it's a secular religion and people who have religion rarely challenge their beliefs but other than that why do people keep voting for the decimation of their city be it san francisco chicago seattle portland how do they rationalize this to themselves it's a great question, and I do a deep dive in the book on Portland and its public school system and Seattle and the violent uh, riots of 2020. And, and then I explain the answer to that question in this way. You have this interesting split. In a city like Seattle, 70% more or less of the people uh, want to have tougher policies on homelessness. They want to have tougher policies on open-air drug markets and shoplifting. They want to have – they support the police. They want to have a return to law and order. On all of these issues, the public is in a majority, sometimes a significant majority, opposed to the left-wing factions that control the policymaking um, uh, uh, institutions, the city council, sometimes the mayor's office, although that's shifted recently. And the question is why? Why does the public opinion not translate into public policy? And the answer is because public opinion without institutions that can marshal it into a political consensus and a political power means almost nothing. Um, because in the city like Seattle, all of the institutions that shape knowledge, opinion, and policy are dominated by the left. You have left-wing billionaires that give money to all the NGOs. You have left-wing bureaucrats within the permanent city government that, that, that push left-wing orthodoxy from the inside. And you have left-wing media that's subsidized by those same billionaires that only pushes one opinion, and any deviation will earn you um, uh, scorn, will earn you uh, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the ridicule of the established opinion. And then finally, you have something that I confronted when I was living in Seattle. If all of that fails, if you can't be shamed by the media, you can't be, uh, you know, sh- shoved aside by the by the billionaire benefactors. If you if you're having uh, if you're threatening the consensus within the city government, then they unleash the foot soldiers. These are very unsavory people, often very disturbed people. They'll show up at your house. They'll put posters with your name on it. Uh, they'll rally the mob to try to intimidate you physically to go after your family. And then when the time is right, they'll actually riot. They'll actually commit violence. They'll actually start looting buildings. And so this institutional architecture um, has enough power that it can defy public opinion. 
And, 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 and unfortunately, a place like Seattle, San Francisco, L.A., until the institutional power balances out, um, the public opinion won't matter to a great degree. But why in, in all right, so why, that, that was unfortunately excellent. Why does that matter when you're alone in the ballot box? Because your, your, your perceptions are already, in some ways, um, preformed. If you don't have the language, you don't have the media narratives and the reporting and the evidence, um, you don't have um, the, the, the people that are hitting the streets, that are tabling, that are talking to you, and you don't have the NGOs and the nonprofit centers and the research institutions that are building the case, building the consensus and mobilizing public opinion – most people are relatively apathetic. All right, they we'll continue that in a moment. Basic. Christopher, I want to I want to push your book, America's Cultural Revolution, up at DennisPrager.com. Nobody breaks more news about the left than Christopher Rufo, as I have told you for all of my broadcast career. Whatever the left touches, it ruins. This is the book that illustrates it certainly for the United States, just out. America's Cultural Revolution, how tragic that it even is written. How the radical left conquered everything. Christopher Rufo is the writer. The book is up at DennisPrager.com. You begin with Herbert Marcuse. What do you say, the father of everything? So that's an interesting question. Some people think it was uh, Dewey. What was Dewey's first name? Thomas? What was his first name? Yeah? No, no, no. Not Thomas. What was Dewey's first name? Anyway, it doesn't matter. What matters is, let us say Herbert Marcuse never lived. You think things would be different? That's a really good question. Yes and no. I think what what Marcuse's genius was, to give him some credit, was that he synthesized, conceptualized, and directed trends that were already emerging. And so he was able to harness the student movement of the 1960s. He was able to theorize or rationalize the black radical movements like the Black Panthers and the Black Liberation Army. And then he was able to put it in Hegelian philosophical terms at a very high level and then guide these young revolutionaries strategically. And a counterfactual history, I don't know, but what I know certainly, looking into his record, is that he had his hand in guiding the strategy of the left that still is the guiding strategy of the left today. Everything from Black Lives Matter movement to Marxist intellectuals within academia, and even corporate diversity training, something that I go into in the book that's really never been told in, in, in before is that his third wife, one of his graduate students that was 40 years his junior, had the idea of taking Marxist ideology and translating into corporate racial sensitivity trainings. This was back in the 1970s. And so he had his hand really in, in, in so many different ideas. And, and he was a brilliant scholar, a brilliant mind. Um, but unfortunately... He overestimated the utopian streak of his own thinking that in practice yielded nothing but devastation. So if he were alive today, would he be uh, basking in glory in his mind or would he think, wow, what did I wrought? You know, I, I, it's, it's hard to say exactly, but what I came to admire, even though I disagree with Marcuse through the long research that I did on his life and work, 
I came to his admire, admire in, at least in his own mind, his sense of intellectual honesty. And he actually, uh, in the 1970s, considered the New Left's uh, gambit for revolution um, a disaster. And, um, and, and I think that he would be, in some ways, disgusted with what's happening right now because he was an old-line Marxist who wanted you know, working-class equality. He wanted to have a society beyond class conditions. And I think what he would see today is an utterly fake left, uh, an utterly elitist left that manipulates symbols and manipulates language to secure their own benefit, their own status in our elite institutions and has nothing to offer the working class or, 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 or the underclass that he would say. And so I, I think that he would be a radical leftist, certainly, but he would also be a radical critic of where the left has gone that I think uh, is so bankrupt, it's so fraudulent. I think even someone uh, like Marcuse would recognize. So you ha- your last chapter is titled The Counter-Revolution to Come. Is that an optimistic statement? That is an optimistic statement. And, um, you know, the reason that I'm making it and the reason why I'm framing the solution in those terms is because if you really believe that America has gone through and is going through a cultural revolution, something that 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 threatens to subvert the very basic principles and structures of our society, of the Constitution, of our system of rights and private property and individual freedoms, you can't merely solve that problem with some corporate tax cuts. You actually have to go to the root of it. And the, the, the revolution can only be defeated, in, in a sense, by something that takes it seriously and uses equal or greater measures. And I think that's counter-revolution. And this is something that has been kind of around the edges of our discourse since Nixon's uh, administration, specifically his second term. And I think it still offers a valuable concept and frame because, look, if conservatives want to have a country that is recognizable uh, and, and consonant with the principles of our founding, we have to take drastic action in order to make sure our institutions are reformed in that direction. And so I think it requires uh, an intellectual counter-revolution, an institutional counter-revolution, and a cultural counter-revolution that I outline in at least uh, the basic terms in the final chapter of the book. Where do you see this growing from? Parents disgusted with their schools? Where, where is our Herbert Marcuse movement? Yeah, I, I think it comes from the middle class and works outward. What we saw with the reaction against critical race theory in schools, all of those parents protesting and organizing, getting together, mobilizing the narrative, you know, having this, this, this uh, intellectual debate, and then turning it into public policy through legislation in now 22 states is the perfect formula that is really just the prototype for this larger movement. But what it really is means fundamentally is re-engaging the democratic structures that have been given to us by our, by our ancestors, by our forebears. Uh, we need to make legislation meaningful again. So state legislators need to say, hey, wait a minute, we set the rules of the game. We set the values for our institutions. We determine the personnel within our schools and universities and state bureaucracies. And we want to make sure that the state is not at war with the values of the citizens, but actually affirming and advancing the values of the citizens. And that's going to that's going to require the state um, to, to be conscious of itself, to get out of this posture, the Reaganite posture that, well, all we need to do is get rid of the government and then everything will be fine. 
I, I think that's right in theory. But in practice, right now, America has a larger public sector as a, per, as a percentage of GDP than communist China does at the current moment. And so we need to not only fight to reduce the size of government, but also be honest to ourselves that the state that we do have must be governed according to a set of values. And in the states where we have a democratic majority, those values should be ours. It's a pretty tough battle for obvious reasons, but I'll give you the, the most recent one. So uh, the court says that the president of the United States cannot unilaterally say hundreds of billions of dollars in debt uh, held by uh, by citizens, namely student debt, uh, do not have to be paid. And and now he has announced he's simply ignoring it, and they don't have to be paid. Do you have any comments on that? Is that feasible? Can he do that? I, I mean, I, I hope not. And, and I think that um, there's got to be a way to stop that. Because if you can act unilaterally in that way, you are obliterating the basic balance yes, of power exactly. and the competing right, interests of our Constitution. I, I want to hear more on that. America's Cultural Revolution, Christopher Rufo, up at my, at my website. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Christopher Rufo is a uh, is a gift to this country, and his book coming out tomorrow is America's Cultural Revolution: How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. I just learned, uh, Christopher. I know you know. I'm sure you know, but I just learned it's number one on Amazon, and I'm thrilled about that. Obviously, but. I have uh, I have a mixed reaction. I have said for years now, whatever happens to America and the West, no one will ever be able to say that there ha- that there weren't major voices diagnosing the problem brilliantly, and you're one of them. So. Why why aren't we making more progress in undoing this damage? Well, I, I mean, certainly I'm always an advocate for more progress. But I think that if you look at things within the country itself, there are some really hopeful signs. I think Republican politicians, conservative politicians are starting to change how they think about these cultural issues. Um, they're looking at substantive ways to start recapturing institutions um, as part of my work on, on reforms in Florida, for example, uh, I was appointed 
uh, with a, another group of trustees to the board of a Florida public university called New College. We took it over. We replaced the leadership. We're bringing in more uh, mission-aligned and, and classical liberal-friendly faculty, recruiting new students, giving parent, conservative parents in Florida a place to send their kids within the public university system. And then you see this classical K through 12 movement. It's the fastest growing segment of the K through 12 world. Um, it's going back to the foundations of, of the West, the uh, Greco-Roman culture, the culture of the Bible, the culture of the American founders, all of those great principles and ideas. Um, this is something that parents are demanding and all of a sudden they're, they're really seeing um, fruitfully multiply. And then you're also witnessing the emergence of a conservative counterculture in media, arts, entertainment, faith, et cetera, all of these other domains, um, conservative aesthetics that are starting to be attractive to people. And so I think you're seeing the, 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 the beginnings of a, a movement for revitalizing the culture, for retaking the institutions, and for having a vision of politics that's based on uh, uh, those eternal principles that people are sensing have been degraded and almost destroyed. But uh, I'm an optimist. I have three kids. Uh, there's no other thing I can do but be optimistic about it and get up every day and fight for it. And I think that if we can have the courage to lead, there are so many people in this country who would follow. That's why I wrote the book. I want to give every uh, everyday Americans who are troubled by what they see around them a guidebook for how we got here, a guidebook for understanding the language and the political moment we're living in, and then also the inspiration and the knowledge they'll need in order to move forward. Well, I think that's true. America's Cultural Revolution uh, is the book. People are leaving uh, San Francisco. They're leaving Portland. Are they leaving Seattle? Seattle's a little bit different, actually. Seattle has, I believe, still a slight population growth. But I think the population in Seattle is recomposing, meaning that people who... Uh, are maybe more in the center, uh, are, are, are tending to flee, they're going to the suburbs, but it's still having enough draw for young people, for tech workers, for more affluent um, singles that are drawn to kind of, you know, apartment housing and, and one bedroom, two bedroom places. So they've been able to, in a sense, stabilize at the population level, but at the downtown level, at the business level, it's still kind of a disaster. It hasn't recovered. And, you know, I, I, I go up to Seattle, um, I left three years ago, but I still go up there sometimes. And I mean, it's a wasteland. It's really tragic what happened. I had a friend that visited five years ago, or actually now probably eight years ago. And he said, wow, Seattle's one of the cleanest big cities in America. It's beautiful. Uh, he came back uh, not too long ago and said, you know, it looks like somebody dropped a bomb on the city. It's an absolute disaster. And that's simply just a failure of policy. No kidding. Well, listen, uh, I, I wish you the best. I'm delighted you came on. We have a PragerU video with you, at least one. How many do we have? One? I think we have two, yeah. Two? Great. Anyway, uh, congratulations on the book success. And I would even go further. Congratulations to America on the book success. Thanks for being with me, Christopher Rufo. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Dennis Prager here, third hour of the show. Third hour of my shows for the last week. I've had Julie Hartman on. We do the Dennis and Julie podcast, which I highly commend to your attention, and especially if there are young people in your lives. 
since Julie qualifies as young. Hey, so, by the way, that's an interesting question. Till when is one young? I'm not kidding. 30? I think so. Yeah, 30 is a very big deal for most people. I dread turning 30. I, I know that. <laughs> when I turned 30, I'll never forget my friends uh, had a cake made in the shape of a tomb. Oh, no. Yeah, tombstone. <laughs> well, that's pretty sinister. It was. Oh, right after this show, the new the new episode of Dennis and Julie about struggling with God. Oh, that was a really yeah, good one. We was, filmed that, that last that week. Powerful. Airs at 1 o'clock on Julie Hartman YouTube channel. 1 o'clock Eastern time, 1 o'clock Pacific. Pacific. So 4 o'clock Eastern. Yeah. Okay. So I have some thoughts here to open up the third hour. My friends, to give you an idea of the intellectual and moral level of the CDC, which is a tragedy because people have trusted it, I did until a few years ago, to say that the last few years have affected my view of American institutions is like saying it is cold in Greenland. Listen to this from the CDC website. It is. Uh, it is has a heading. People who are breastfeeding. They no longer say women or mothers. People. That's the CDC. They also say birthing people. Do do they say it? Yeah, I've read the CDC. Yes, birthing people. Instead of. CDC recommends that people who are breastfeeding get vaccinated and stay up to date. So I have a question about that uh, that very sentence for those of you listening. The CDC recommends that people who are breastfeeding. So any group that says people who are breastfeeding is obviously far more political than scientific. People don't breastfeed. Women do. So then when it says in the rest of the sentence they should get vaccinated and stay up to date with their COVID-19 vaccines, doesn't part one of the sentence negate part two? Why will I listen to the advice of people who say people breastfeed, not women? It's a great point. You're right. Right. It It diminishes their credibility. Not just diminishes, it wipes out their credibility. Yes. So I always ask you... uh, this, this this constant question that I raise, how does it affect you when you have little trust in major institutions? Like Harvard, where you graduated from? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that was, you, you taught me that from. Uh, Lori Lightfoot is a professor now at, at, uh, at Harvard. So... The CDC says people who are breastfeeding. The AMA says you shouldn't list the sex of a child on a birth certificate. They'll choose it later. What do you trust now? Well, it's sad. Growing up, I thought that the FBI and I was going to say the IRS, but I probably didn't know what the IRS was when I was younger. But, but you know, major institutions, the CDC, I thought that they were the epitome of trustworthy. And now I don't for obvious reasons. And it's a very unsettling thing because we need to be able to rely on our institutions and trust that they're going to protect us and they're going to lead us right. And it's sad because people who say trust the science, 
if they are allowing major institutions like the CDC to become so woke, they are creating an environment where people don't trust the science, where people won't be as inclined to seek out professional opinions from from doctors or experts, and they may be more inclined to go down a, a scientific path. They are pushing us in the very direction that they don't want us or they claim they don't want us to go in. That's right. Well, I wanted, uh, I should put this up at my website. I mean, it, p- people have to see this to believe it. Let me see when the, uh, when is this dated? So this is from October of 2022. COVID-19 vaccines while pregnant or breastfeeding. And it just came to my attention this weekend. Oh yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Here's the top heading is people who are pregnant. Mm-hmm. People who are pregnant. Oh, oh my, it's, I could cry. Oh my God. People who are pregnant. The CDC. So tell that next time you are told by a friend, well, the CDC recommends getting boosted and getting the vaxxed, of course, to begin with. Say, so you know that the CDC does not believe that only women get pregnant. They won't say pregnant women on their website anymore. They won't say women breastfeed. They'll say people who breastfeed. Why would I take them seriously? I want to know what the average American would answer their you know, proverbial brother-in-law who <laughs> said, you're telling me that the CDC recommends the COVID vaccine and boosters? So here, let me tell you about the CDC. What do you think the average person would, uh, who, who was pro-vaccine would say to their brother-in-law? I think a good 40 to 50% of this country would say, well, they're right. That not all, it's it's not just women that give birth. You think it's that high? Yes, I do. Now, I don't know if they, most of them would actually believe what they were saying, but they would dutifully repeat the narrative that has been fed to them. If I went to the uh, kids you graduated with from Harvard, or Harvard from, or from graduated, or graduated from, uh, what do you think... And the, obviously, it's a, just a subjective take, I understand. You think half your class would say people breastfeed, not women? I would say 40%. You would. Mm-hmm. And you, you're you not sure they believe it. You you believe that they believe they need to say it. Yes. It's like when... So do they know they're saying something they don't believe? Or what were you going to say? It's like what? I was going to say, when I would encounter people who would get outraged by things that were really small, I would ask them, are you really outraged? Or do you think that you ought to be outraged? Or do you think that other people expect you to be outraged? I think it's a similar thing with with this um, men give birth narrative. I don't know if you hooked them up to a lie detector test or gave them 100% effective truth serum that they would really believe that. But I think they would feel that they need to dutifully repeat the lie to keep their standing. Is there standing. such a thing as truth serum? I wish there were. <laughs> but but here's the thing, Dennis. They yeah. have to repeat that to keep their standing in the American elite. They will not say something, even if they believe it to be false, that threatens their personal or professional advantage. Now, I'm not saying everyone at Harvard or every you know person in the who who counts themselves as a liberal is this way. But I would say the vast majority are. Wow. 
we're, we're in trouble, to say the least. Well, I, I wanted to bring that to people's attention. There is another, there's a related thing talking about, let me see if I could fa- find it quickly. Uh, let's see, Mayo, let's see. Yeah, I'll listen to this. I had, uh, I reported this last week. Mayo Clinic threatens to fire a professor for comments on COVID treatment and on men and women in sports. The Mayo Clinic has several hundred active projects funded by the National Institutes of Health across three locations, but the premier U.S. hospital now appears concerned about a professor's comments potentially closing that federal spigot. Because the man said that uh, men should not uh, race against women. Somebody called it the Mao Clinic, M-A-O. I I mean, when you think about the CDC and the Mayo Clinic going woke over science, it is is troubling to say the least. Got another one for you. Here's a big subject. This, This is one of those untouchable subjects. But I feel that if I didn't discuss it, I would be prostituting myself for convenience. So I'm going to tell you about something that happened in Uganda that I would say 98% of my listeners do, do, not, do not know about. It just happened. And the larger issues that it raises. Back in a moment with Julie Hartman. I'm Dennis Prager. sensitive issue that people don't want to talk about. We all know why. I'll tell you why, and then I'll tell you what it is. It's this, for the same reason that the the Los Angeles Dodgers could honor a group mocking nuns, but would never even consider remotely honoring a group that mocked Muslims. And I'm, I don't want a group that mocks Muslims. It's not my point at all. I'm just saying you can do anything you want vis-a-vis Christians and Christianity and nothing uh, with regard to Islam. You could have a crucifix in a jar of urine as a major artwork, uh, but you could never put a religious thing uh, of representing Islam. And you should, by the way, I want to make that clear, in a, in a jar of urine. So that's by way of answering the question, why is what I'm about to say not spoken about? Because people fear talking about it. So I'll give the usual preface, and it's a sincerely met preface. There are many, many millions of good and fine Muslims. It goes without saying. But within the world's religions today, there are more there is more violence coming from muslims than from any other religious group and nobody wants to talk about it because they're afraid to talk about it cuz most people are cowards it's just the way the human race is so what struck my, my not my fancy but what struck my interest was this from let's see from 3 weeks ago 
Wall Street Journal, Uganda School Massacre signals Islamic State's growing reach in, in uh, Africa. More than half of Lubriha secondary school students are dead. More than half the students of a school were murdered last month uh, by, uh, let's see, 37 of its 63 students between the ages of 12 and 22 are dead, as are five adult community members. So I'll read to you a little more. See, this is covered, but nobody talks about it. Ugandan officials say the fighters had crossed over from Congo two days earlier. Zephaniah Kirilu Hundi, hired last month as the school security guard, was the fighter's first victim, killed with a bullet through the head. Alarmed by the gunshots, dozens of boys, you have to understand, uh, Uganda is a Christian country. And uh, they're, they're, Nigeria, which is half Muslim and half Christian, uh, is m- massive massacres of Christians by Muslims. Alarmed by the gunshots, dozens of boys locked the doors of their dormitory, but the men shot through the windows and lunged petrol bombs inside, setting ablaze mattresses and other flammable belongings. As the boys' dormitory burned, killing at least 17 of them, how's that for a death? The fighters chased after a group of girls trying to flee. The men hacked to death 17-year-old Amina Biira, who played on the school's netball team. Three cousins, Marian Ithungu, 22, Junior Mbambu, 20, and Godesio Biira, and, and 16 of their classmates. Mbambu, in her final year of school, dreamed of studying to become a lawyer, according to her mother, Augustine Biahali. So the other, uh, just just to give you another example here, this is from Christianity Today, from uh, all exact same time, two weeks ago. Hundreds of Nigerian Christians killed in recent attacks. That's in Nigeria. At least 450 Christians have died in a series of attacks on Christian villages in three north-central Nigerian states since May. So that means in one month. 450 Christians killed in one month. How many Americans know this? Three. Yeah, the ones sitting in this room. The ones in this room, yes. Well, certainly there's... Muslim terror against Christians, but we don't even talk about the terror that Muslims commit against their own people. Look at the sectarian civil war that erupted in Iraq, you know, just about 10 years ago. There have been various sectarian civil wars, most recently in Syria. How about the young woman, the 22-year-old Kurdish woman, Masa Amini, who was killed, beaten to death by the morality police in Iran because a sliver of hair was poking through her hijab? How many Americans know that? We would not be talking about this concocted Islamophobia if we, like many European countries like Denmark, had Muslim immigrants coming in. Not all, of course, are bad. Of course, not all are terrorists, but many come in and commit crime and inflict terrible suffering on the population. We would not be taught. We would not be so averse to acknowledging that fact if it were affecting us. Good point. 
So I have Muslim listeners. I, I, I would love to hear from them. Yes, Colin. Do, do, do you think, A, it is wrong for an American, let's say, talk show host to bring this up? B, do you think there is an issue that afflicts Islam? Look, a lot of people acknowledge there was an issue afflicting the Catholic Church with regard to child abuse from, by priests. Nobody denied it. It was like, it's like one of the, it's, it's a world scandal tragically and of course everyone knows the majority of priests never did anything like that right but but it's nevertheless a terrible thing and this is very very upsetting a that nobody talks about it b that it is occurring and what about islamic state and just the taking of people and beheading them remember the egyptian workers who were just Oh yeah, knelt by by the Mediterranean and, and was it was it in Libya or no no Egyptian it was the Egyptians yeah and and obviously the people who suffer the most from radical Islamic terror are Muslims who are living under this regime just as you've said on your show no one hates bad cops more than good cops no one hates militant Muslims more than non-militant Muslims who are the vast majority so why do they exist. Is there something within Islam that allows for it? It's not happening in Christianity. It's not happening in Judaism. It's not happening in Hinduism. We'll be back in a moment. saw these beheadings with Islamic State, and of course we saw 9-11, and now this massacre of Christians in Uganda a couple of weeks ago, 450 Christians massacred in Nigeria in just the last month, and I, I, don't, I, I don't know why it is unfair to ask, what is it with at least sub-segments of Islam. I mean, look at the Iranian regime. I mean, the Iranian regime is to, is totalitarian religious. You mentioned the murder of the of the young woman, Masa Amini, and that which started a massive uh, out outcry of anti-government agitation in in Iran. Her death. I mean. Do we, do we have an example of a religious totalitarian regime outside of Islam? Not that I know of. So these are honorable and honest questions asked. I partook, Julie, you'll find this fascinating. I actually partook of a conference. I wonder if it's on YouTube. I have to check it, uh, check it out. And I was on with the head of the Muslim Public Affairs Committee, one of the biggest Muslim activist organizations in America, to his credit, by the way. The question was, uh, does Islam need to be reformed? And I argued yes, and he argued uh, no. Uh, And I said everything I'm saying now in front of him and a fair number of Muslim students. And nobody was offended. In fact, we went to lunch afterwards. The, these are not anti-anybody questions. But if we don't ask them, it's because people, I think, are just afraid of Muslims. 
Well, it goes back to what we were saying in, in the last segment or the segment before. There's a contrived, I believe, outrage. You're right that these are totally honest questions to ask. And we ask them of everything in life. We we question the, you know, Biden administration. We Of course, it's different, but, but we... We are not afraid to go to the realm of the uncomfortable in any topic. So why should we be afraid to go to the realm of the uncomfortable with Islam? You you ended the last segment by asking, why is this happening? I did two episodes on my show, Timeless, which I'm sorry, shameless plug, but I'm so proud of these episodes. Um, they're called Islam 101 and Islam 101 Part 2 because I've really – a quarter of the world is Muslim. We ought to understand the history and the tenets of the religion – First, there are some things within Islam that do condone violence. It's not a PC thing to say, but it's true. There are hadiths, for instance, which are sayings attributed to the Prophet Muhammad, which talk about the glory of jihad or fighting in a holy war. I have one here. It says, quote, he who dies without having taken part in a campaign dies in a kind of unbelief. We can't not acknowledge those just because they're unpopular. Does that mean that the entirety of the Quran or the entirety of Muslim teachings condones and uh, legitimizes violence? Of course not. But, but we can't ignore that there are hadiths and there are sayings in the Quran which do. And the second reason, if I may, why I think radical Islamic terror has proliferated over the past really two to three decades, and this is, of course, not a, um, my condoning it, of course, but it's providing an explanation Muslims view themselves as, as having lost a lot of power in the world over the past century. In 1919, the Ottoman Empire collapsed. In 1948, the State of Israel was founded. That's called, as you know, Nakba, the catastrophe. There have been wars that the United States has partaken in in the Middle East, of course, Iraq and Afghanistan, which have been hugely humiliating to the Muslim world. So again, certainly not condoning it. But I think a lot of this this terror is trying to reclaim some of the lost power and fight back against the perceived humiliation. Just to add, I think that's absolutely accurate. But, uh, of course, when they had power, it wasn't that much different. It was better, though. I mean, if you look at the 17th and 18th centuries in the Ottoman Empire, they were actually quite tolerant to, to Jews so that and is Christians interesting, under I the was Dini just going to mention it's the Ottoman Empire that slaughtered the Armenians. True. That is true. Well, that well, yes. It was in World War II. World but War for, I. Yes, you're right, World War I. But for centuries in the Ottoman Empire, they were actually quite tolerant hmm. to monotheistic minorities, Christians and Jews, not polytheistic right. minorities. They certainly weren't to the Hindus. Yes. There was a mass, mass killing. 1-8 Prager 776. You're listening to the Dennis Prager Show. I, uh, I will cite the greatest Muslim writer ever since Muhammad, anyway, when we come back. Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager here. Julie Harvey with me. Third hour is uh, now regularly. I was going to mention, I'm talking about the massacre of Christians happening in, in Africa, and nobody cares. By nobody, I don't mean it literally. Some people care. Very, very few. Let's put it this way. If a group of Christians massacred Muslims, 
it would be the dominant item in the news. When Israel responds to thousands of rockets sent over to kill as many Jews in Israel as possible, Israel is condemned for responding. But nobody says a word in the world organizations about the massacres of Christians by by Muslims. Akron, Ohio, and Gina, hello. Hi, Dennis. Thanks for taking my call. I just want to respond by, you know, how horrified I am, you know, at these revelations of these incidents bringing up all over the world, not just only in Africa, but all over the world. And let you know, as a lifelong Catholic, we are not hearing about these incidences in church at all from our bishop, from our priests. And I can tell you, we are not hearing a peep out of the Pope. We're not hearing it about what's going on with Catholics here saying the rosary and uh, participating in some Latin masses, which for most people who aren't Catholic, that does not happen. It's usually a special occasion for a Latin mass. Uh, we are being labeled as extremists. And, uh, and here we are around the world and a pope that has a pulpit that could speak to the world, and we don't hear a thing. Well, thank you. I have something to add to that. Well, I have two things to add. One is something I say to uh, all religious groups. <laughs> it's a painful, funny line. I don't care what religion you're a member of, as long as you're embarrassed by it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard you say that. Is it a good line? I actually got it from a rabbi who used to say this just within Judaism. I don't care what denomination you're a member of as long as you're ashamed of it. <laughs> so I've adopted it for for religion. So here's one for you Catholics to really to blow your mind. I don't know where I came across this. This was not widely uh, reported. It just happened uh, two weeks ago. This is from Artnet News, whatever that is. and it's But it's not just Artnet News. Pope Francis welcomes artists, including Andres Serrano, of Piss Christ fame, in a ceremony celebrating the Va- Vatican's art collection. So it, it, it is uh, quite remarkable. Listen to this. Among the artists present, present was Andres Serrano, whose 1987 photo, Immersion, or Piss Christ, showing a small plastic crucifix immersed in urine, caused outrage among American politicians like U.S. Senators Alphonse D'Amato and Jesse Helms, and led to funding cuts to the National Endowment of the Arts, which had supported (laughs) its production. Listen, this is the line, though. Oh, so this is even in the New York Times. I was surprised to be invited (laughs) <laughs> you can't you can't make this stuff up. I was surprised to be invited and even more surprised that he gave me a thumbs up. Serrano no. told the New York Times. No. The Pope gave him a thumbs up? Yeah. Are you kidding? It's what the guy said to the New York Times. Oh my god. Oh, that is sick. The Pope also gave the artist a very particular sign of encouragement. It was a great mischie- mischievous smile, Serrano told the Times. I, 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 don't, I don't get it. I, I really don't. 
Uh, I mean, he claims to be a Christian artist, but it's a very odd way of showing your Christianity. Do you think that Ser- Serrano was making that up about the Pope in no, order to? No, I don't. Uh, mm. Why was he invited? No, no. And and the, look, others can uh, certainly validate that this is what happened. That he was uh, he 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 was spoken to by the Pope. He was specifically addressed. I mean, I think it'd be clear if he made that up. Okay, let's see here. Uh, Valley in Dallas. Hello. Hello, sir. Mr. Prager, how are you doing? Thank okay. you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Uh, you know, uh, you just made a couple of statements talking about two groups who are committing most of the violence, you know, the ISIS and the Shabbat group in Africa. And you basically, from what I heard, put the whole religion of Islam on trial. If these two groups were doing any good work for Islam, you would have some Muslim country voicing support with these groups. As best I can recall, I've never seen any Muslim group or any Muslim country support these two groups. So you have to ask yourself, are these people doing the work of Islam or are these just some radical who just are out to do something bad in the name of religion? Okay, I'm glad you called. So number number one, I yeah. it's not just two groups. Uh, Boko Haram is the biggest massacre of Christians in West Africa, and I didn't even mention them. I, Islamic yeah. State. Yeah, Shabab, Boko Haram. I agree with you. Okay, all right, all right, all right, right. So so, why is it? Tell me, and I, I that's why I took your call because I wanted a dialogue. I assume you're Muslim, and I appreciate your listening I and calling. As a matter of fact, I'm sitting in the parking lot of my mosque. Perfect. Okay, good. prayer has started five minutes ago, so I'm here for my Zohar afternoon prayers, but I thought it was important. Yes, it was important. That's why I took your call. Thank you. So tell me, tell me this. Is it unfair for me to ask, why does this, is this happening within Islam? I mean, there's an entire regime that is like this, the that of Iran. Now that's Shiite. You're probably Sunni. Nevertheless, yeah. So okay. So nevertheless, it's, tell me if why is the question unfair? It, because it's not it's not true for one thing. I just you know you talk about Muslims killing people, and I'm sure you've seen recently that in the 25 year anniversary of the massacre that the Serbs did against Muslims and Muslim men and Muslim boys 25 years ago in Serbia. Right, so hold on with me. I I don't want to let you go. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.